Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, darkrooms, wood shops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concepts, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. I'm talking today with Jamie Foster, an artist, fabricator, and good friend of mine for many years. Jamie graduated from Vassar in 2000 with a degree in studio art, moving to Brooklyn soon after. There he worked for a wide range of employers, including an early internship at Art Forum Magazine, for painter Peter Halley, and at the mold-making facility KB Projects, and for artists such as Bryce Martin, Banks Violet, and most recently, Robert Gober. He earned his MFA in sculpture from the Rhode Island School of Design in 2011 and continues to fabricate while concentrating on his own studio practice. We're chatting here today in Jamie's studio in the Brooklyn Navy Yards about how he first began fabricating. When I graduated from Vassar, I didn't know that, I mean, I guess I knew that artists had assistants, but I never thought that I would be one. I didn't really consider that as a career option. How do I say this? So I, I graduated, moved to New York, and I was like, okay, I think I want to work in an art publication. Uh-huh. And so I started out by temping at like, oh God, I did proofreading at a law journal and I was a personal assistant to a pharmaceutical executive at Forest wow. Pharmaceuticals. Um, and while I was living that life and spending my nights blacked out in a shitty apartment in Long Island City, I drafted a series of cold letters uh-huh. to various art publications. And one of them was Index Magazine, which is, was run by Peter Halley, the painter. And so the only people that got back to me were the people from Index. Yeah. So I went in for an interview at Peter Halley's painting studio slash Index magazine headquarters. Yeah, because he ran both out of the same yep. space in Chelsea. And on West 26th. And, you know, the people at Index were like, or Peter was like, you know, we don't have anything for you with the magazine, but I need a personal assistant. Mm-hmm. Is that something that would interest you? And, you know, I was just excited. To me, this was like this golden opportunity. I was like a 
tired of temping and feeling like, you know, I was doing like data entry and yeah, it makes just, you feel like you're part of the world that you are interested in to like be exactly. in the room. Okay, so I get hired by Peter Halley to be his personal assistant. That is it, what personal assistant like helping him with his admin, or you were helping him make things, or did it grow from one into the other? Harriet. <laughs> I can picture all of my coworkers. I can picture Peter. I can't, for the life of me, truly recall what I did there. Yeah, I wasn't doing anything with the paintings. That was he had a couple of guys. He had some amazing, amazing and thoroughly embittered painters that made all of his work for him. Uh, you know, I answered the phones. I was in charge of Peter's schedule. I was sort of like the first line of defense. Yeah. Um, you know, he was dealing with his own career, with the magazine, and with a personal life that was very complicated. And I sort of <clears throat> stood between him and all of those things yeah. on any given day. That said, I hated being there. And... At one point, and you can edit this out later <laughs> if you decide that we don't want the, you don't want this included. But Peter, that's, that's up to you. <laughs> Peter took me aside after like being there for seven months, uh-huh. and this is a direct quote. Peter told me that he felt that I was subconsciously subverting or undermining his masculinity. Huh. And I, now it it makes sense. It makes more sense to me, and I'm not, we don't need to talk about why it makes sense, but I I had never heard, no one had ever said anything. I was 22, 21. (laughs) Like there was one moment in particular where he didn't, he seemed unsure of how to use a tape measure, and I like kind of just took it out of his hands and was like, just. Yeah. Let me Let do me this. And I think that's sort of, that's the only moment that I could think of that explains that kind of comment. But yeah. So Peter, so here's the thing. Peter, for all of that, did respect me for whatever reason. And he was like, look, I know every famous living artist. I'll get you a job yeah. with any sculptor that you want to work with. The day that he said that to me, his work was being shot for transparencies by mm-hmm. the photographer Ron Amstead. Amstutz, mm-hmm. I forget, I always mispronounce his last name. Ron overheard what Peter said to me. Ron finished up his work probably like an hour before my day ended. He packed up his gear and left. And I finished my day and left the building. And when I got downstairs, Ron was waiting outside of the building for me. Yeah. And he was, he was like, look, you don't want to leave here owing Peter anything. But I've got a friend in Greenpoint that makes molds and does like sculpting and casting for Paul mm-hmm. McCarthy. And I, I think he's looking for someone. And, and that that's how, that was my connection to Constantine. And that's how like in 2000, at the end of 2000, I ended up 
stopping work at Peter's and then starting with Constantine, which is where I met all these people that we both know. Yeah. And that's Constantine's how Constantine's was KB Projects, exactly. which is a kind of mold um, making for hire company. Um, and then how did you end up working for banks, Violet? So after 9-11, <laughs> work slowed down at Constantine's. I left there and then somehow ended up, I, I ended up working for Tom Otterness doing sculpting and mold making. I was there for a year and then when I asked for a raise, they very nicely told me that I was never going to make more than $18 an hour there. Mm-hmm. And I decided that that was unacceptable and I gave my notice. The day they told me that, I gave my notice and went and started hanging drywall and immediately was for making for $25 an hour. Yeah. Well. I mean, so I hung drywall for the better part of a year and then our mutual friend, Matt Israel, like I decided that I needed to get back into the art world. And I would also point out that during, at, n- at no point was I making my own work. So Matt... Israel puts me in touch with Bryce Marden. I work for Bryce Marden for, you know, I'm just going to keep saying a year because the years just kept on passing. Um, after about, we'll say, let's say 10 months with Bryce, Bryce takes me aside one day and he's like, look, because I was working as a personal assistant for Bryce Marden. Yeah. I was like sweeping his front steps providing, making sure he had fresh fruit in his studio and ordering his paint. Yeah. Bryce took me aside and was like, you should be making your own work, not painting my kitchen and driving my wife to the gym, which were two other things I was doing. Yeah. And he cut me a check for two months rent. Wow. And, or for, I'm sorry, for two months pay. Yeah. And set me free. That's um, a very generous. Yeah, absolutely. Employer. And so I probably spent like I probably went on like a three-day bender. And um I think I quickly realized that I needed structure. I was not yet mature enough to apply structure from inside. It needed to be applied from without. Mm-hmm. So I was at, God, I was at East River Bar at four o'clock in the morning with John Connor, and he knew Banks, and we, and Banks was with Gardar Einerson, and we all... And that was kind of a group out of the Columbia MFA. Exactly, program. exactly. Yeah. So we all end up, we're in the bar at... 5 a.m. they had locked the doors and uh, it came out that I needed work and Banks was like, you know, I'm going out of town for a week and I need some molds made and, oh, I should have said that when I, literally at the same time that I got let go by Bryce, the woman that I was dating at the time broke up with me. So I was out of an apartment and out of a job. Uh-huh. Banks was like... With a check. <laughs> yeah, but with money. Um, Banks was like, you can 
stay in my live work for the week that I'm away. You can live there and make these molds and I'll pay you up front. Great. And like, you know, he left a credit card for me in case I needed to get more materials. And that was the start of, I don't know, that must have been 2005 at Banks's. That was a far more fly by the seat of your pants and fucked up blackout sort of working environment. Just because you felt like it was like a very hard partying studio? It was, it was very hard partying. I mean, day and night. And the people that I worked with, we stuck together day and night. I mean, I forged some amazing yeah, for friendships. For or for worse. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. And, you know, I have no regrets. I wouldn't trade it. I didn't kill mm-hmm. anyone. And I wouldn't trade it away, but I don't miss it. Yeah. And, but, but I guess my point is, in, with both Banks and Bob, I stepped into a pre-existing continuum. And then, especially at Bob's, you know, it was up to me to make my place there by not reinventing the wheel, but by taking charge of certain aspects of the fabrication and making them better. But the only way to do that is to quickly assimilate the facts on the ground, assess how people are working, and assess the materials that they're working with. You apply the logic, an extension of the logic that you already possess. Yeah, so there was like a, a structure pre-existing that you kind of had to come in and make more efficient. Or Let me give you, yeah. let me give you this is the best example working for working with Banks. And I have to say, like, making Banks' work was easy. It was always... Technically or technically, yeah. it was easy. It was what made it hard. I mean, he made it hard, and we made it hard on ourselves, but not because of the challenges that we were encountering. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think that, or to give everyone involved the benefit of the doubt, his work became more technically demanding, but that was after I left. I also think that when artists have assistants that they like, there's always, whether they realize it or not, Bob realizes it. Banks, I think, at the time was too fucked up to realize it, but you play to the strengths of the people that you Mm -hmm. like. And so when I was working for Banks, we were doing a lot of poured envirotechs. You know, he did like everything we did involved like black panels or white panels, but it was this. And that's that really shiny um, resin. Exactly, exactly. It's this epoxy resin that's made for pouring on bar tops. Mm -hmm. Now, because I'm the son of a house painter who also did, he did a lot, you know, my dad did like faux painting with feathers and marbleizing and like all these things that were popular in the 70s and 80s and he also did bar tops and he brought me in on all of these jobs from like when I was super young, you know, through high school um, where we were using Envirotex and using it in far more appropriate circumstances than I was using it in Banks Violet's North Williamsburg 
studio, but I was able to, like, just from word one, I was able to be like, okay, well, let me tell you how we make this, like, look a million billion times better, just but with, like, super basic. Yeah. Super basic things. Um, What do you think is the most, like, challenging project, technically, that you've ever worked on? I've done some challenging things at Bob's, and they haven't been challenging in that I make a lot of delicate things at Bob's Mm -hmm. or Bob's pieces require delicate materials to be secretly constructed in such a way as to be archival. And there have been some works that I've made for Bob where, you know, you can't see any of the work that I did and that means that it was 100% a success. Gotcha. But the fact that the work can get shipped globally and that people can hang Mm -hmm. it with no problem or without injuring the worker themselves, that means I succeeded. (laughs) As I age, I'm thankful for that job. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish that I didn't have to work. I would just rather be here in my studio. But since I have to work, that's for me the best job. And one of the reasons is that when there's work, like months, sometimes months go by where we're just doing house cleaning, but things have been picking up. And that means that I get to work at my own pace and do creative problem solving and just sort of sink my teeth into what I can't help but think of as math problems. And that's satisfying. And I don't take it home with me. Yeah, that's a rare thing in any job. Yeah. That's a good thing. Do yeah. you, like, would you consider yourself to be, like, a specialist or a generalist? Because when you talk about that kind of enjoying that job, it sounds like the variety is good, but you also have some pretty specific skill sets. So you would think that as time has gone on, gone by, I would have become more specialized. But I think what has happened is that the opposite has become true. And that has to do with the sort of wide range of problems that I get to apply my skill set to. And it also has to do, again, with the, a positive aspect of where I work, which is that once... Like, I'm, I've already made my bones there. And now Bob is like, I want to do this crazy thing... But he's willing, he's always, without fail, willing to give me a shot at it. That's really empowering. Mm-hmm. So, if anything, like, uh, I think that this is good. I mean, because I'm becoming more generalized. And I think yeah. that that, you know, that's one of the things that I take home or take into my own studio, which yeah. I'm like... I am fully convinced that within a certain realm that I can do anything I want to do. Yeah, that's very empowering. Like I can't, I, you know, I can't print photos in here and I am terrible at welding aluminum and I farm those things out. Yeah, when, It's a money question. If there's a question, it's more like, can I afford these materials? I mean, that's when I, I feel like fabricating often comes down to it being a money question. Like, which is the sh- you can make anything if which you have the right amount of money. Which is super shitty. Yeah. I mean, you know, when, when I was in graduate school, or maybe you encountered the same thing, 
there were people that you were in school with who ha- who came in with money, who yeah. were, who the weren't living off of their student loans. I mean, one of the reasons that my loan burden is so large is because I took out the max amount of loans because I made a conscious decision that I didn't mm-hmm. want to worry about money in the two years that I was in yeah. school. And this is when you were getting your MFA at Rhode Island School of Design. Yes, from 2009 to 2011. But I knew people who had the ability to, I put this in quotes, just throw money at the problem. And I sometimes mean, that meant hiring me in graduate yeah. school to solve their problems. I mean, this kind of comes to a thing that we've talked about before um, in our long conversations while we're fabricating together in the past. Um, like, you fabricated, then you went and got your MFA, and now you're back in the fabrication world. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have this unique view of, um, you know, a lot of people come out of an MFA program and realize the reality, but you kind of knew it before, during, and after your degree. Like, there's such a uh, trend of de-skilling in the art world, especially in art world education right now. Like, can you talk about making your, being asked to make your classmates work? And like, did you, when you were a teacher's assistant, did you tell the students about fabrication? Like, how did that? (laughs) I'm I'm going to answer the last part first which is to say that as far as talking to undergrads in particular yeah. about what life was going to be like when they left. Because I kind of wish someone had given me the I did not. Talk. I didn't give them... I didn't want to come off as embittered. And yeah. honestly, I felt so good being in graduate school that for wonderful reasons, it was that much harder for me to access. I mean, uh, the years of, it wasn't all bile, but there was the years of bile that I had accumulated. But I mean, all of that was, that's no one's fault but my own. And that's from years of fabricating before going to grad school. From the years of fabricating, but also years of flailing. Yeah, that was like life flailing. Yeah, yeah, life flailing. Um, yeah. The flailing wasn't part of any aesthetic pursuit, <laughs> although, <laughs> you know, it all feeds. Yeah. So, I'm trying to rewind to the earlier parts of your multi-parter, um, but I wasn't too aggressive about talking to the kids yeah. about what it was going to be like. Although, I'm. Don't know if you do this. I'm just going to assume you do. Like occasionally, I give talks in my head to younger students, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's sort of like a way of talking to myself. Yeah. But I and I, you know, I do give advice to these ghosts that I wish I had been given. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, is it? Do you warn them? not to fabricate or do you tell them to pay more attention to the class distinctions going on around them? Like what, what do you wish someone had told you flailing through the New York art scene pre 2008? God, there was so much money in the art world at that point. So crazy. (laughs) Um, I mean, there are, I guess there are a lot of things that I wish I had known. 
I mean, the first one that comes to mind is, and you know, this is sort of awful. If you spe- but okay, if you were an art major in undergrad, no matter what your major was, I think that people come out of undergrad thinking, oh, I should get a job in my major, mm-hmm. right? So I came out of undergrad thinking like, oh, I should be an artist. And I think that I felt, I felt like I should be making work and I wasn't making work and then I was making other people's work. I think a good thing to remind yourself, or I wish I had known this, is that like, it doesn't matter. No one cares if you make art or not, right? No yeah. one cares. What I mean is like, the people that love you want you to be happy. But even now, if I stopped making art right now, if I said to you right the second that this is a fire sale, yeah. the only person that would care is Spec, and I think that she Spec, would, your partner. Yeah. She would only care because of how, because she knows how deeply it would affect me or how out at the edge of the pier I was to even say something like that. But And that's what you want to tell future baby no, 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 you? No, 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 no. <laughs> but I would rephrase it. I would, re- I would rephrase it. I would say that it has to come from within. And if you're not doing it, don't beat yourself up. Yeah. The flip side of this is you and I both have some friends who, who ostensibly, while they were making art for other people, were making and I'm doing air quotes, they were making their own work at the same time. And when they finally stopped making work, it was a big deal. Yeah. And it involved repeated announcements to me, both sober and intoxicated, about like, like everybody feels terrible about it because... About quitting making About their quitting own making art because it's so... It just gets into... It's, it's how you think about yourself. It's how you define yeah. yourself in relationship to the rest of the world. Yeah, and I mean, you've, you've talked to me before about this, like, um, I refer to them as like a pantheon of voices that you make work for. They're like the imagined people. It's like, like you said, like teachers, mentors, parents, people, um, that when we're working, we kind of turn to be like, what would they say mm-hmm. about what I'm making? So to that, that, that kind of pantheon of voices is part of your identity. So when you quit, you're kind of turning your back on them. Can you talk about like who's in your pantheon? Well, I think I would like to highlight something that you just said, which is that you, when you, part of this like human consciousness for everyone is voices in the head. And there are, I have to assume... <laughs> Let's just assume everyone has that. Look, <laughs> it makes us since feel better. natural philosophy... <laughs> first took root in the early 1600s and people started wondering if there was a separation between the meat of man and the personality of man. Mm-hmm. Where those two overlapped, if they did, people have been wondering about these voices that we hear that define who we are as people, right? Um, all the So, okay, we all hear voices, yes. Those of us that have chosen to pursue this, I'm so, you know, I'm, I feel self-conscious talking about this stuff because I don't want, to, want it to sound grandiose, but I think anyone listening to this and Harriet, you realize that we're very like work-a-day people. 
we're making a mess, hurting ourselves, stressing about things. Like, this is not a... It doesn't feel grandiose when I'm up to my elbows in plaster wondering how... No. Material A is going to glue to material B. And it's not our job to make it grandiose. Or not make it grandiose. That is on other. That's the that's the responsibility of other people in the on the art world. But when you say that, when you say it's not our job, is it? Are you referring to us as artists or us as fabricators or both? Artists. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to circle back. The voices in our head when we stop listening to them, we're turning our back. We who have been knowingly or unknowingly training ourselves to listen more closely maybe than the average person. Mm -hmm. We have been turning up the volume on aspects of our own personalities. We have been ignoring other responsibilities in our life to give, to allow greater volume to the voice Sometimes to the detriment of our health. To the detriment of our health, to the detriment of our relationships, to the detriment of our bank accounts. I mean, there's a real... You know, it's, okay, it's a price that we every day wake up and choose to pay, Mm -hmm. but it's a price that we're paying. But we choose it, but it's a price that we're paying. Yeah. And when you turn it off, you're denying a part of yourself that you have let run rampant for however long. And that's, I, I think that's a real battle and people struggle with it and feel badly about it, which is why I've had these friends it's like an admission of guilt and of weakness. I mean, I yeah. didn't do anything to make them feel guilty, but I could empathize. Yeah. I mean, who, when you think of this kind of um, chorus of voices, how do, or how do the artists that you've fabricated for, are they in that chorus? Are they, do no. they influence you on your, like... Well, here's... I mean, that's a, that's a good question. None of the artists that I've worked for are in the chorus. That's Purposely, n- do you like remove them from it? No, I don't even hear them. Um, and I think that that's because the artist that I've worked for the longest now is Bob Gober, and I have the healthiest of all my employers. He's the one that I have the healthiest relationship with, and also I'm healthier than I ever I've mm-hmm. ever been. So my, I feel like there's like I. I, I am the best employee that I can be. I'm a great employee, but I punch in and I punch out. I mean, I literally punch in and punch out, but also I don't... Does he really... He has a time card? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, cool. But I do not... I don't take it home with me, and I don't yeah. feel like... You know, it's taken years to get to the point where I'm... I don't feel like... I'm not spending my creative capital on someone else's work. What I am spending is my time... Yeah. But you know what? It's a I, different equation than creative brain space. Yeah. It's still an equation. But, but I mean, I might be tired at the end of the day when I come here, but I don't feel like... Let me say here, just so the listener knows, we're sitting in Jamie's studio. Yeah. You're, inside, you're inside my brain right now. You know what? I don't feel angsty about it. Yeah. But I don't feel angsty about anything these days. And when I was younger, I did feel angsty about it. But also, I was a wastrel. <laughs> yeah. I mean... I mean, okay, in your... In another question about the kind of... We'll just refer to it as the chorus. Um, are your parents in there? Like, I know you come from a very... Um, you mentioned your dad's a house painter. And you come from this kind of very 
uh, is traditional the right word? Traditional New England background? Oh, yeah. Um, like, how do your parents play into that when you're... Do you know, they... <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just say it. They are, well, A, still very much in love, still married. They're like goofy with one another. Um, I, I mean, it's, they provide a wonderful example of how two people in, you know, a long-term romantic partnership can age well together. They are, they have always been, I can't even imagine, I can't even wrap my head around how supportive they were because I was a weird little kid and they supported everything that I wanted to do. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I don't even know, I don't know how they learned to do that. Their parents didn't support them. Yeah. I mean, I guess like when I, when I think of you, a lot of our conversations are about kind of dance around or directly address the idea of like labor and hard work and as we have been the people making the thing that everyone else Mm -hmm. is having kind of larger philosophical discussions about, we often have more interesting discussions sanding something. So there's this kind of relationship between like labor and sweat equity and philosophy that seems to come from your childhood. Sorry, that's a loaded question. (laughs) Well, I think you answered it yourself. I mean, uh, yes, yes. I, one of my earliest memories is sitting in the, the dust collection unit of a table saw in my grandfather's cabinet shop. Um, and like, uh, feeling like I was in a snow globe throwing handfuls of sawdust in the air, but I was small enough to fit in under a table saw. And someone let me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a pack and play. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, or like a pile of leaves with, a, like, you know, with formaldehyde blades and yeah. 220 volts of electricity coursing through it. Um, I grew up surrounded by adults who saw and received, they saw value in and received direct compensation from their labor. You know, that was the Mm -hmm. relationship. It was, I mean, it's very one-to-one. It's time in and money out. And I, I think that it's taken, you know, you absorb these things when you're young. You know, that's not how the art world works, but it's how the fabrication side of the art world works. You know, we get paid like laborers. There's a relationship between tapping out fiberglass or making a mold or sanding something until it's perfectly smooth. There's a direct relationship between that and our hourly rate, right? But once we're done with the piece and then the artist, whoever's work it is, comes in and 
maybe does some final thing or not, when the piece is actually sold, the true that relationship between right labor yeah. and money is completely sundered. And we participate in it and bear witness to it. And yet, you know, you need to be able to, to succeed in this world. I feel like you just can't get too hung up on it. And I think I was hung up on it for a long time. Or there was some dissonance there that made me just, I don't know, probably made me sad more than anything else. Yeah. But now you just, it's like, all right, you get to 40. And if you can't hold these two ideas in your head, then you shouldn't be here. <laughs> here meaning fabricating no here being an artist yeah um, I have one last question for you uh, which I ask everyone I interview uh, what is your favorite tool oh that's easy <laughs> what is it <laughs> well that's not easy sorry I have a f- okay so I have a favorite th- three tools uh huh but there's only one that I have literally considered even just last week. Where am I going to have this? Where on my wrist am I going to have this tattooed someday? <laughs> and that is the... Just so the listeners know, there's not much room between the other tattoos on your wrist right would, now. <laughs> Yeah. So any tattoo on my wrist means that it's actually pretty handsy as far as <laughs> tattoos. It's going to be more of a palm than a wrist. Um, that would be the a pre-drill countersink ah. combination bit. That's like one of those bits that is it's like a twist bit that comes to a very sharp point and then has an adjustable countersink that you can slide up and down the bit. For, so so the you pre-drill are... for a screw and countersink for the head at the same time. And that is like one of my... I find that to be so satisfying. I mean, the like a quality 12-foot metal case tape measure and the 6-inch sliding square or combination square also those are the other two tools in the my Masonic triumvirate. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jamie, for speaking with us today and for inviting us into your studio. If listeners would like to see any of the artworks mentioned, they can go to the gallery websites for Robert Gober, which is www.matthewmarks.com, and Banks Violet at Team Gallery or www.teamgal.com. Jamie's own work can be seen at the Bible Gallery website, www.bedandabible.com. A final credit to the Bryce Arazabaglia Quintet for our lovely theme song titled Mount Fuji. And please check in and subscribe to future episodes at www.craftsmanshippodcast.com. Thank you.